0: Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Let's turn in your Bibles to where we are today. And those of you who have been following along with us know there is no single place where we are today. Let me begin this way. There is, as we see in the Bible very early on, in chapter 3 of Genesis, one who opposes the purposes of God. And everything about the Word of God, everything about our life, at every turn, in every thought, in every word, every deed, in every motive, in every activity, there is one who opposes us. Why am I saying this? Because even right now as I stand here, I feel a huge opposition against me in the teaching of this word. Why do I share that with you? Because I think it's critical to understand the spiritual dynamics which occur in all of the lives of all believers at all times. And so my personal opinion and feeling this morning is this. As much as I want to teach this, I could easily this morning walk out of here and not doing it because I just don't have that sense of where we're going today. And look at the notes. I've already prepared it. You know, this is, just want you to understand what goes on in the life of someone who shares the word. Not so you can commiserate and think about me in a certain way that you can also make sure you apply it to your own personal lives. Amen? And there are particular issues and truths in the Word, which I know, and perhaps you do too, that the enemy more forcibly and more regularly opposes. Because those issues that more clearly and compellingly reveal the very essence of this God of ours, those are the issues, those are the times, those are the activities where enemy will bear down in a greater way. Amen? Amen. And so, Gambino, stand up and pray before we begin. Amen. Well, just to make sure we know where we are in our study, we're going through the Gospel of Matthew, and believe it or not, we're in chapter 19. I think it's chapter 19, isn't it? And in the first 20 verses, Jesus is being confronted and questioned and interrogated and trying to be entrapped. The snare of the devil. The one who started it in Genesis is still working in the life of Jesus as he continues to work in our lives. And he's trying to entrap Jesus with a question where in Deuteronomy 24, the first several verses, especially verse 1, it says something about marriage and divorce and the man may marry, uh, divorce his wife for any particular reason. Well, they're wanting to take that and they want to know with Jesus, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? And Jesus' answer goes to the heart of the matter by, Jesus answers by going to the heart of the matter by referring them to the Scriptures. And he says, look in Genesis. Genesis 1.27 and 1.28, I'm, I'm sorry, in 2.24. And what does he say? God has made them male and female. And then in 2.24, God has joined them together as one flesh. Those two verses are the response or the result of or the outworking of verse 26 in chapter 1. Where God in creation, having completed all the creation, the first six days are completed. Then on the day, first five days, everything's completed. Then every on the sixth day, he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And the burden is that especially in a marriage in all believers generally but especially in marriage there is something that that God is uniquely portraying about himself in the relationship of a man and a woman joined in marriage, the two becoming one, that is so distinctive and compelling that it cannot be duplicated in any other relationship in the church. So we have said this, that marriage is the clearest and most compelling revelation of the identity of God, of who God is and how God is, of his nature and character. And in this, the Christian marriage is to be a trumpet call, a bright light within the church and to the world of the absolute uniqueness of our God. So that when others see a husband and wife, as they live life together through all the issues of life. In this context, in this relationship, more than any other relationship within the church, and we're not saying other relationships in the church do not portray this, but more than any other, when they look at marriage, they are to see who God is, especially as it relates to Who the man is to the woman, who the woman is to the man, and how they relate to one another, and how they come together and walk together in unity as one, declaring the glory of God. No other relationship, no other relationships in the church can do it to the extent and to the clarity as a marriage. And so this morning... This, again, was going to be a short presentation and moving along, but that doesn't happen all the time. This morning, we're going to deal with the uniqueness of God. Marriage, again, every relationship and every person in the church, yes, but specifically marriage because of its uniqueness. Because of the uniqueness of the marriage, God is uniquely identified or image through the uniqueness of marriage. And so we're going to talk this morning a little bit about the uniqueness of God in one category and beginning maybe next week if we continue to finish today, the uniqueness of God in another category. So this morning we're going to talk about the uniqueness of God's existence and next week begin to talk about the uniqueness of God's nature. And so I want to just lay a lot of groundwork this morning about the uniqueness of God's existence. And I don't believe, although I don't know, possibly all of you have heard most of this. And let me warn us again, warn us again. Here's how we are typically as human beings because there's so many new things on the horizon and new, new, new. And everybody, we may listen to the same thing this morning we've heard a hundred times. I've heard that, I've heard that. Every time the Word is taught or preached or read. May I repeat that? Every time the word is taught or preached or read, if it's the same verse that you've heard a thousand times, God is in it doing a mysterious spiritual hidden work often in the foundations of our faith. So let us never, ever fall for the temptation of Satan to say, I've heard that. Oh, I know that already. Say this, I've heard it. And glory to God, He's giving it to me again because there's something about my faith that I'm unaware of, and He's doing a greater work of strengthening. So never, ever leave a teaching of the Word of God in a way that, oh, well, that was all right. It's never to be. That's Satan's thought to you. Always say, even if you sit, oh, like a lump, no, okay, always know this. There is an underground, fundamental, foundational strengthening of God. As the word is taught. Amen. One want to warn us because I know how we are. Oh, I heard that. I know that. He said that last week. Pastor Keith taught that last Friday. I remember, et cetera, et cetera. So let's be very careful about that. Let's give God the right to repeat himself and to do it as often as he wants to because we need him to. Amen. Okay. So that kills any criticism of what I'm going to do this one. No, no. <laughs> So, Frank, don't criticize me this morning, okay? So, the uniqueness of God. The uniqueness of God. We are introduced to this God who is unique in Genesis 1.1. What, so, what is so unique about this? You see, at the time that Moses wrote Genesis, this world is a polytheistic world. Do you know what I mean by poly? Poly meaning many Theos means God. It is a world that believes in a multiplicity of gods. The world is a polytheistic world. The study of ancient religions and ancient peoples, I don't know whether there is any exception, except with the word of God, shows that these people in those days and still today believe In many gods, many levels of God, perhaps one God, the big chief God, but all kind of other minions and other uh, underling God. But they believed in a whole lot of deities. This is the standard way religion was practiced and understood in the ancient world. And all of a sudden, we wind up hearing something in the beginning God created. Well, Donnie, which God Was it a man God or a woman God? What is it, the chief God or one of the underling gods? Which God? And so all of a sudden, for the first time, we are introduced to the absolute uniqueness of this divine being whom the Bible calls Elohim or God. The belief in a single divine being is called what? Monotheism. Mono meaning. One theos meaning God, monotheism, the belief in one God. And so all of a sudden, Genesis propels onto the stage of humanity through its religion that there is only one God. Now, there are only three religions which believe in monotheism or three monotheistic religions. What are they? Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. You're right. There are only three monotheistic religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. And is it safe to say, please, please don't answer me on this, is it safe to say that all three religions believe in the same God? The world says that. The world says these three religions believe in the same God. May I say to you this morning, that's not the truth. May I say to you this morning, it's not the truth. And we'll begin to understand that. Even remember Moses. Remember Moses? Moses raised in the courts of Egypt, in the house of Pharaoh. And even Moses' encounter shows us that Pharaoh himself doesn't know this God, whom the Bible calls Yahweh. And by the way, when you look at your Bible, for instance, turn to Exodus chapter five, and almost anywhere in the New Testament, want to make sure we have this clearly in our minds. So Exodus chapter five would be a way of um, a place of doing it. Although we could go to Genesis two four and begin there, but let's just go to Exodus chapter five, the first couple of verses, and. Look at the word Lord. Do you, how many of you see the word Lord in that verse? Does everybody see the word Lord? Everybody says, see the word, thus saith what? The Lord. Now, does your Bible have the word Lord in capital L, high case, then capital O-R-D, lower case? Does everybody's Bible have it like that? Capital L, uppercase, than O-R-D, capital and lowercase, or maybe all caps in uppercase. Now, that's different than when you see the word L-O-R-D, capital L, and then O-R-D in lowercase. No caps. The word that you're looking at is, I think it's about 6,800 times in the Old Testament. I could be wrong a little bit. That's the word that was substituted Adonai in the Hebrew Bible for the word Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. And so you'll find me saying Yahweh rather than the Lord often. Why? Because I want to make sure we accentuate the name of this God. Because the name of this God, Yahweh, is extremely significant. And again, marriages are to be a statement and a proclamation of the name of this God of ours. And so Aaron and Moses have come before God, I'm sorry, Pharaoh. Remember, Moses had been told to go out, which we'll see in a moment, to Pharaoh. And Moses and Aaron said to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel. Oh, he's your God we got gods too. We got gods too, you see. We also have gods, but you see, you only have one God. We have many gods. Thus saith Yahweh, the God of Israel, let my people go. Verse two, but Pharaoh said, who's Yahweh? I've not heard of Yahweh. I don't know who he is, that I should obey his voice. I do not know Yahweh. And so the the existence of a single divine being was absolutely unique and unheard of in the ancient world. You may want to turn to Exodus chapter 3. Just go back a few verses and I'll read some of this. The first six verses. You remember Moses' encounter with God on the mountain Horeb. The mountains of Sinai or the mountain range generally. The mountain itself is Mount Horeb, H-O-R-E-B. And it is Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. There are interchangeable terminologies or names. And so when you see Mount Horeb, it's the same name. Or Mount Sinai, it's the same name. So don't get confused. It's the same name for the mountain. And so I, I typically say Mount Horeb, but whatever. And so even Moses doesn't know who Yahweh is. Even Moses. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb. You see, Sinai, the mountain of God. That's why I like to call it Horeb, because it's called the mountain of God. That's what the word means. And the angel of Yahweh appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And Moses looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight. Why is this bush not being burned up as every other bush that I've ever seen that burns in a few minutes is all consumed? But this bush keeps on burning. I need to go look at this thing. And when Yahweh saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And then Moses said, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? Who is he? What is he like? what does he want to do? How much power does he have? How is he going to do it? All of that's wrapped up in the name. What shall I say to them? Then Moses says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to thus this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you to me, me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you, and this is my name forever, Yahweh. This is my memorial name, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all the generations. Now, did you notice in verse 5, what kind of ground is Moses standing on? Holy. Now, why do I want to, or why do I believe the Lord wants us to accentuate the word holy? Remember what we're talking about. We're talking about the uniqueness of God himself from among all the gods of the nations. In verse 5, the place where Moses is standing is called holy ground. Now, the Hebrew word for that is Kadesh, either Q-O-D-E-S-H or K. Is Kadesh? We've heard that before. The word Kadesh means separate, other than, set apart, completely unique. That's what the word means. It means that there is nothing else in all creation that even begins to come close. To manifesting the uniqueness of God. Except and until he creates the church itself and especially the marriage. And then it is in the marriage that God is to be declared as holy. So what often do pastors or people call marriage. They call it what? Holy matrimony. You see, Moses is standing in the presence of the one and only God, the God who is God, the God who is unique. He is Kadesh. Why? Because he is the one and only God, not one of many man-made gods of Egypt. He's unique. In Isaiah 5:16 the Lord said the word says God is called the holy God. This means that everything pertaining to God, every aspect of his being, every aspect of his personhood, every aspect of his desires, every aspect of his activities, everything comprehensively about God is holy again, what do we mean, is absolutely unique. So it's it's okay. People say, well, God is holy and God is love. I don't like saying that because it's as if we are separating God's holiness from his love, and these are two issues or things about God. It is, I think, more accurate to say God is holy, unique, absolute other than transcendent, from any and anything in all this universe. And as a result of that, whatever attribute or activity we're going to look at or experience in our life from God that displays God is a holy attribute or a holy activity. Why? Because it is generated from, it is a revelation of this God who is in himself, Unique. And so, is it proper? Yeah, but is it as accurate to say God is holy and God is love? What should we better say? God's love is a holy love. Why? Because it is God's love and God himself is holy. God's righteousness is a Holy righteousness, because the God who is righteous is holy. And therefore, let us begin to think, and maybe even adjust some of the categories of our considerations concerning God. And remember that inclusively and comprehensively, God is holy. And everything about him is completely unique in the essence of it. Given to us and expressed to us and developed in us and manifested through us to a very, very, very limited degree so that when the world sees the church, and especially when the world sees a marriage, a Christian marriage, The Holy Spirit begins to identify marriage as that which uniquely describes and manifests the uniqueness of this unique and holy God. Because what happens in the church is this, and what has happened in the church is this, because I think because of a poor biblical background, marriage is not ascribed to be the transcendent work of God and revelation and ministry of God in the church as it should be and many see the marriage as just another even in a church another issue another activity another relationship and we're moving along and it's just one of these things and if it works well great if it doesn't well you know let's do something else and move along that is not what's happening in the sight of God here You see, therefore, there is no human relationship like marriage, and this uniqueness of marriage is to display that there is no other God except Yahweh. And there's no other relationship on earth like marriage. Why? Because God has created it to be emblematic in in some way to some extent of his own uniqueness. Therefore, you see, the purpose of every Christian marriage, may I repeat that, The purpose of every Christian marriage. May I say it one more time? The purpose of what? Every. Now, I don't know the condition of your marriage. I don't know the condition of all the marriages in the church. But to one extent, I don't care what the condition is. Because it does not alter the fact and the purpose of God. The purpose of this creator God in creating us in his image and then in joining a man and a woman specifically within the context of his people is to show not only in every person, but so show most uniquely and most powerfully his own uniqueness in the midst of every single marriage in the Christian community. Therefore, the purpose of every Christian marriage is to declare the uniqueness, the holiness, the Kadesh of our God, to show the world that Yahweh alone is God, that he is holy, that he is unique, and that he is Kadesh. This is why, you see, marriage is called holy matrimony. Why is marriage holy? Why is marriage holy? Because God is holy. Simply put, because God is holy. Do we get that? Do we understand that this morning? Want to have a, a deeper and a clearer understanding that as Moses was called to God and he began to call, come toward God, God said, wait, Moses, take off your shoes from off your feet for the ground upon which you stand is holy ground. You see, marriage is as holy Ground as the ground that Moses stood on before God. As Moses trembled in the presence of this majestic being, this majesty of majesty, this creator, this glorious eternal God, and he trembled. Maybe in fear, but he trembled in respect and awe. I am in the presence of the Almighty God himself. The one who really is forever God. And he was humbled. And nothing of his own work of humanity was to stand before God. For he had to shed his own shoes, and he had to come before God as a man who would not depend on any man-made issue. And he stood before this God in awe and amazement. That's the same kind of understanding and revelation and experience every married couple in Christ should have because specifically and most compellingly this god this god is declaring himself in the midst of a husband's and wife's relationship In a way that he doesn't do anywhere else. And will not do anywhere else. This is holy ground. This is as holy, I believe, Ron. As holy as the holy of holies. This, I believe, is the central heart of God among his people. The heartbeat of God in a way that cannot be revealed in any other relationship. And I believe on the day of judgment, every husband and wife will be judged primarily in relation to one thing. Not whether you're in Christ because we're in Christ. But the foundation and I think the the weight of the judgment will be to the husbands. Did you reflect me to your wife? I think the, the what word do I want? The work of God, I can't get it. I think the, the word of God to the wife will be the same way. Did you reflect me? To your husband? And did the two of you walk together in such a way that I was manifested as absolutely unique and majestic and glorious and wonderful? Is this what our marriages are showing? And to any extent that they are not, we need to repent. So let me throw a challenge out there to the men and to the women in this class. And I throw it out to me too. It's not in my notes. And I challenge you, and I'll challenge me. Husbands and wives sit together and talk together. In relation to to what extent your marriage is revealing the very person of this God. Not just like other marriages in the world, but in such a way that this God, this is God. You see, knowing and understanding that marriage is holy to the Lord, why? Why? Because he's holy and he's created marriage to be a display of his uniqueness. Knowing this and understanding this should begin to motivate and empower us in a greater way and to better appreciate and live out this divine purpose for our marriages. So now that we understand our marriages to be a living statement of the uniqueness of God's existence and supremacy... This reminds me of the Ten Commandments. Remember in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, what does it say? I am Yahweh your God. I am Yahweh your God who brought you up out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's a command that should be over the house, I'm sorry, over over every marriage, having no other gods before me. Now, how does a marriage have other gods? How can a marriage uniquely display the uniqueness of God? Well, I think that's one of the things each one of us has to ask. If we're married and again, whether you're married or not, but especially for the married people, how am I as a husband? How am I as a wife? How are we together displaying the uniqueness of this God so that when they look at our marriage, they know that Yahweh is God, that there is no other God? How can that happen? By not having other idols before us. Remember in I am the Lord, I am Yahweh your God. What does he say? You shall have no other gods before me. Well, what does that look like? Verse 4 tells you, you shall not make unto yourself any craven images, or graven images, rather. Now The word image there, remember, Genesis 126 We are made in the image and for the image of God as God's image bears upon the earth so that when others see us, they may see the glory and the revelation of our God. And he says, married people, do not allow your marriage to begin to be an image factory. Don't allow images of other people, other things, other activities that would in any way either say that I am not who I am or compete with who I am. Don't do that. And so by living in such a way that God is not seen to be unique, is my marriage one that shows that God is not sufficient? Is my marriage showing that God is not pleasurable? Is my marriage showing that God is not worthy of sacrificial obedience, in the way my wife and I relate together, am I, have I, in any way, allowed something or issues or stuff to come into my marriage, which shows that the uniqueness and the onlyness of this God is not sufficient. What was the problem with adultery? It showed that God wasn't sufficient. What is the problem with all of these sins? It shows that God himself is being replaced and has a competitor in our lives. So husbands, are there competitors in your life as you relate to your wife, but you are competing? saying that God has a competitor. Wives, the same thing. And so the way we relate to one another and consider one another and talk to one another and think about one another and whatever with one another, we are literally saying something about, is our God majestic? Is he unique? Is he wonderful? Or is there something else going on? And am I dissatisfied in some way? with my spouse in some area, therefore I am dissatisfied with my God. Because you see, God has created us so that when these issues arise, and believe me, they're going to arise. Gene and I have been married 50 years this April, and we have a great marriage, but there are issues that come into the marriage, and every time these issues come in, it is a satanic attack through my flesh and through the world and through the culture and through Whatever. So that my marriage, like your marriage, can say, God isn't sufficient. You can look somewhere else, you can go other places. Isn't this what enchantment is all about? You want to know what enchantment is? We've talked about enchantment in this church for weeks. It is the temptation of Satan to draw us away from being God's unique people to uniquely image him in all of our relationships. Isn't that what it's about? Isn't that the bottom line in it all? Every husband and wife, as well as every believer, but every husband and wife must be careful not to succumb to Satan's temptation. Listen to this word, sobering word from Paul. 2 Corinthians 11.3, and may I ask you to write it down or remember it. 2 Corinthians 11.3. He says, I am afraid. Uh Uh-oh, there's something big here. Paul's telling the church, I am afraid of something for you, my friends, my church people. I'm afraid. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts... Therefore, your actions and a whole lot of other stuff go along with it. will be led astray. What? From what essential issue? From a sincere what? Devotion to whom? To Christ. And as that happens, as we're being led astray, in whatever issue, and no matter who's at fault, As we're being led astray, the needle of our marriage, which is a point directly to God, begins to go elsewhere. Begins to go elsewhere. Divorce in the church is always the result of being led astray from a sincere devotion to Christ the problem with the church because of its individualism and whatever the world has out there all of this stuff that we've been hearing it's true this is happening but there's one one reason the church marriages we're being deceived and led astray from a pure devotion to Christ. It's not complicated. You want to know what's going on in your marriage? You're being led astray. And we have to fight for that. Amen? Amen? Next week we'll talk about the nature of God.